Good morning. President Biden offers a meeting to Vladimir Putin, a report from Kiev, and who's legally to blame for the war? Trump's taxes and the fallout from a dinner party with a fascist. With these and other stories, I'm Paul Durienzo with the news for Friday morning, December 2nd, 2022. The United States passed a bill on Thursday to mandate acceptance of a deal reached between rail companies and workers in September. The Senate vote was 80 to 15. It came one day after the House voted to impose the agreement. The measure now goes to Biden's desk for his signature. A measure to give workers seven paid sick days fell short of the 60 votes needed to pass. Paid sick leave was a major sticking point in the talks, along with draconian work rules. Union groups were unhappy with the final result. The Transportation Trades Department Labor Coalition tweeted, quote, The Senate just failed to pass seven days of paid sick leave for rail workers. We're grateful to the 52 senators who voted yes and stood with rail workers. The Association of American Railroads trade group praised the Senate vote. Still, CEO Ian Jeffries acknowledged that many workers remain unhappy with working conditions. And President Biden honored French President Emmanuel Macron at a state dinner last night, the first for a foreign leader in a presidency shadowed by the pandemic. Ukraine took center stage as President Biden offered to meet with Russian President Vladimir Putin if the Kremlin was ready to make peace. I'm prepared to speak with Mr. Putin if, in fact, there is an interest in him deciding he's looking for a way to end the war. He hasn't done that yet. If that's the case, in consultation with my French and my NATO friends, I'll be happy to sit down with Putin to see what he wants, has in mind. He hasn't done that yet. In the meantime, I think it's absolutely critical what Emmanuel said. We must support the Ukrainian people. The idea that Putin is ever going to defeat Ukraine is beyond comprehension. Imagine them trying to occupy that country for the next two, five, 10, 20 years, if they could, if they could. He's just miscalculated across the board. And so the question is, what is his decision? How does he get himself out of the circumstance he's in? I'm prepared, if he's willing to talk, to find out what he's willing to do, but I'll only do it in consultation with my NATO allies. I'm not going to do it on my own. Biden also acknowledged glitches in the Inflation Reduction Act that France says favors American-made climate technology, including electric vehicles, with subsidies. Macron applauded Biden's effort to slow down climate change, but adds the subsidies would be an enormous setback for European companies. In related news, Russia's foreign minister, Sergei Lavrov, accused the West on Thursday of becoming directly involved in the conflict in Ukraine by supplying the country with weapons and training its soldiers. You couldn't say that the United States and NATO aren't taking part in this war. You are directly participating in it, Lavrov said in a video call with reporters. He added the barrages of missiles, drones, and artillery fire that have left millions of Ukrainians without power, heating, and water was intended to knock out energy facilities that allow you to keep pumping deadly weapons into Ukraine in order to kill the Russians.
The Albert G. Milbank Professor Emeritus of International Law at Princeton University is Richard Falk. He tells the news, while it's not easy to say which country is legally accountable for starting the war, it's the United States that provoked Russia. Well, that's a complicated question that seems simple. Of course, most obviously, Russia broke the fundamental rule against aggressive force when it attacked Ukraine in February of 2022. But the U.S. has done lots of things to provoke the attack, and also it has failed to live up to the U.N. Charter obligation to attempt to settle disputes by peaceful means. So there is a lot of responsibility to go around. There's an, and one of the things that has really been, I think, very provocative has been the U.S. waging of a geopolitical war against Russia at Ukraine's expense. It wants to show uh, Russia that after the Soviet collapse, there's only one country in the world that has the uh, authority and capability to act outside its borders, and that's the United States. In effect, a Monroe Doctrine for the world. Uh, How's that working out for the U.S.? Hard to say at this point. It's dangerous because it's activated concerns about the nuclear danger that are more serious than at any time since the Cuban Missile Crisis of 1962, because as Kennedy warned, one must never put a leader of a nuclear weapon state in a position where he has to choose between political surrender and recourse to nuclear weapons. And that's fundamentally what we've been trying to do in relation to Russia, partly to send a signal to China not to mess around in the its region, especially with regard to Taiwan. This is using Russia to send a message to China. Exactly. Trying to keep this unipolar reality that emerged out of the Soviet collapse in the early 1990s and allowed the U.S. to be the only geopolitical actor in the world. Tsunami like never seen before, drug addiction in the United States, homeless, unhoused people in the United States. Already a shaky social fabric has been kicked asunder by COVID. Why doesn't the U.S. fix its own problems? Exactly. Uh, I think that's a very important perspective, and it will lead to serious decline uh, in the United States, at home and abroad, and to a lot of unpredictable political developments within the country, including a raised threat of kind of fascist revolt against constitutional authority, the sort we saw on January 6th as a prelude. Germany wants to rebuild its military and could overnight become the third largest military in the world that they're seeing that they have to militarize? Yes. Instead of strengthening, 
the transatlantic alliance and relationship, it's actually undermining it because Europe is waking up to the fact that the U.S. was using the Ukraine war as a way of extending its own geopolitical reach at the expense of Europe and the hardships that Europe will face this coming winter and for the foreseeable future by breaking the relationship with Russia. What they're feeling right now in Ukraine, the reality of the situation is winter is coming and there's hours and hours of no electricity every day in the capital city, much less other places. Shocking that no serious effort was made to seek a diplomatic compromise at the very beginning. What will happen now is probably the same sort of political outcome that could have been achieved back in February or March. It's the failure of the Biden presidency for demonizing Putin and encouraging Zelensky and Ukraine to avoid a diplomatic compromise. He Initially, Zelensky wanted that, but because he became so dependent on the U.S. for diplomatic and military support and economic aid, he had no choice but to succumb to this kind of victory scenario, which mm. will never happen. Anything you'd like to add? This is a crucial moment where the saner minds will make this belated effort to establish a ceasefire in a political negotiating venue, but it should have been done earlier. The people of Ukraine and the society have suffered as a result, and American society, as you suggested, has also been victimized by an unnecessary and cruel war fought for geopolitical reasons. Richard Falk is the Albert G. Milbank Professor Emeritus of International Law at Princeton University. Meanwhile, many Ukrainians are facing a long, cold, and dark winter as temperatures plummet below freezing and missiles and drones knock out power infrastructure as fast as it can be repaired. Ukraine's state energy supply company said in a statement last week the pace of restoring damaged power plants was being slowed by strong winds, rain, and sub-zero temperatures. And the mayor of Kiev, with three million residents, said half the city was without power. Only one in three homes had heat. A journalist and resident of Kiev is Maria Pisarenko, who has appeared on the news several times. She says Ukrainians have become acclimatized to the hard conditions. Yeah, you know, really uncomfortable. Right now, we're already having winter weather for like several weeks. And fortunately, Russians also know how is the weather in Ukraine. And they try to bomb all the energy infrastructure just prior to these days. For now, cities like not only Kyiv as a capital, but also other cities are very dark in like nighttime. So you don't see a lot of street lighting. You don't see houses with lights inside because we're having these power cuts, blackouts, as we call them. They're not going according to schedule, but Ukrainians are very resilient and ready to kind of be prepared for everything. Right now, for example, I'm sitting in my apartment with lights on and I'm happy because I live in the area which has like 
rare power cuts or blackouts. And other areas of city have more regular power cuts. But we are with light at times. We are with running water, more or less heating, central heating in our apartments. So we are happy. What we are talking about lately, uh, we have this saying, without light, without power, without heat, but without you. And this is addressed to Russians, so Ukrainians are ready to even, you know, live in such conditions, but without Russian occupiers. There's still determination to resist despite the, the what will probably be growing, even maybe worse, conditions. Yeah, right. You know, nobody is kind of angry towards, I don't know, city council or city services. Because, like, why don't you switch on light for us? No, no, no. This is not the case. Everybody is, like, you know, very understanding. Okay, we're ready to kind of live with electricity being turned on for, like, three or four hours a day, like, in the morning or during the day or at night sometimes. Some people have lights on, like, at 3 a.m. when they are normally sleeping. So they wake up, they do all the chores laundry, cook foods and go to sleep, wake up without light already and go for work for their daily life. It's strange, you know, situation right now because everybody, it seems like, in Ukraine were waiting for a new round of Russian missile attacks this week because we used to have this almost like regular missile waves of massive missile attacks every Monday at first since mid-October, and then Russians switched to missile attacks on Tuesday, and then every Wednesday. People are, like, living, you know, in between these attacks. On Tuesday or Wednesday, Russia bombs power stations, all the energy infrastructure, then it takes, like, two days to restore, more or less. Since, like, Thursday or Friday, you can live your normal life for two or three days, still with electricity, like, three hours a day, but you have like normal life without risk of missile attacks and you can go by your like normal schedule. Maria, isn't it terrifying when these missiles strikes come? Yes, you're right, but it's the ninth month of war and when I even say this ninth month of full scale war, I myself can't believe that we are holding, you know, for such a long time. And everybody got used to this It may sound very strange, but it is how you live in the country which is at war. It's your country. Some people are considering spending winter, for example, somewhere in Europe, but this is like, I would say, less than like 2% of population, I would say so. During missile attacks, people are like, okay, here we go again. Everybody is very infuriated and angry towards Russians because you have your normal day and then you have to go hide in bomb shelters to hear the sound of missile flying over your head, over your house, is nothing, you know, close to pleasant or bearable. The moment you hear this very specific sound of kind of like whistle kind of type of sound, you contemplate your life thinking like, okay, maybe it's for me, you know, maybe this missile is about to target my house, maybe it's my last second of my life. So you like push yourself into the wall and you wait for this sound, you know, to, to go further and to understand where this missile flies. A normal story already for people living in Kyiv. I have a lot of friends telling the same stories. 
this is why you have to go to bomb shelter and sit there for hours waiting for this missile attack to come to an end. So you hear the air raid siren, you have to run downstairs nearest bomb shelter. If you don't, you hear missile flying. And then you finish waiting for this air raid siren. You have this notification on your cell phone saying it's the end of air raid siren. So you can come back to your stuff, drink coffee, continue your work. This is how all the Ukrainians are living, you know. This all may sound funny and normal, but then you see the smoke and fire somewhere through your window. You can see houses being targeted either with a missile or with debris of fallen missile. You see the reports of people dying during these missile strikes. You instantly, like when missile hits some power facility, you have your light in the room blink several times and then go off. And you understand, okay, so it means they hit another power station facility or whatnot. Adjusting to this type of life, it's not pleasant, you know, but you have to do this. And people, I would say, are getting ready for wars because it's already like minus temperatures, minus uh, like five degrees Celsius below zero, you know, below freezing. We are getting ready for new huge missile attacks. We understand that even though air defense forces are working to their limits, Russia still has more missiles. Wars is yet to come, but after wars, you will have better, you know, like we see this light somewhere far away. Journalist Maria Pesarenko is resident of Kiev in Ukraine. A recent photo of Kiev taken at night shows a city without streetlights and homes and office buildings dark. But despite the hardship, many Ukrainians say they're ready to tough it out. And you're listening to the news from New York City. I'm Paul Durienzo. In national news, a three-judge appeals court panel in Atlanta threw out former President Donald Trump's lawsuit to stop an FBI investigation of how 3,000 government documents, many classified, ended up in Mar-a-Lago, Trump's Florida home. Dealing Trump a devastating legal setback in his quest to prevent the Department of Justice from using any of the documents in a criminal probe into his alleged retention of national security information. Trump can appeal the ruling, but that's considered a long shot. Now the newly named special prosecutor Jack Smith can move with his investigations at top speed. In an unrelated case involving Trump's mounting legal woes, the Treasury Department has acknowledged sending the House Ways and Means Committee six years of Trump's federal tax returns, ending a years-long legal battle. The handover had been on hold until last week when the Supreme Court declined to intervene. Outgoing House Speaker Nancy Pelosi praised the decision but didn't promise the returns would be made public. We need to possibly have legislation requiring candidates for president that reach a certain threshold that the public has a right to see their tax returns. So where they go next, I don't know. If they, if they legally can release information from those returns, do you believe they should? Th- that, that's a judgment they're going to have to make and, and keeping with what the purpose is. The purpose is how does this exercise, which took a very long time, but was upheld by the Supreme Court, the right of Congress to have access to that. I think the public has a right to know. That's why we should pass legislation requiring candidates to do that. That's why every other candidate has, except you know who, and uh, who shall remain nameless here. I would hope 
that the public would have the opportunity to see it. But I, again, it's complicated, it's technical, it's legal. During his 2016 campaign, Trump broke with presidential election norms and refused to produce his tax returns for public review, and they remained private after he took office. Trump claims he was prevented from making the returns public because he was under an IRS audit. In more Trump news, the former president has long enjoyed support from conservative Jews and backers of Israel, but the president who once famously said there were fine people apparently, including white supremacists on both sides of a bloody neo-Nazi attack with anti-fascist protesters in Charlottesville, Virginia in 2017, Finally, even Trump's staunch pro-Israel politics have failed to shield him from the blowback after he had dinner with the anti-Semitic entertainer Yee and fascist agitator Nick Fuentes at Mar-a-Lago. On Monday, New York Senator Chuck Schumer went to the Senate floor to denounce the former president. For a former president to sit down and have dinner with a high-profile anti-Semite is disgusting and dangerous. To give an anti-Semite even the smallest platform, much less an audience over dinner, is pure evil. Even assuming the former president didn't realize Mr. Fuentes was coming to Mar-a-Lago, for him to refuse to condemn Fuentes and his bigoted words after the dinner is appalling and it is dangerous. Now, I'm glad that some of the former president's friends and allies, particularly those in the Jewish community, are pushing him to do the right thing by condemning this vicious anti-Semite, since the former president does not seem to have the honor, the decency, the humanity to do it on his own. I vociferously condemn the former president's decision to meet with this anti-Semite and urge my colleagues on both sides of the aisle to do the same. And Mitch McConnell cast out on Trump, who is running for president in 2024, of ever winning the presidency. There is no room in the Republican Party for anti-Semitism or white supremacy. And anyone meeting with people advocating that point of view, in my judgment, are highly unlikely to ever be elected president of the United States. In related news, a few days after dining with Trump and Fuentes in Florida, he appeared wearing a mask on Alex Jones's Infowar program. Given a chance to deny he was a Nazi, the singer instead doubled down, saying he saw good things about German dictator Adolf Hitler, claiming, I love everybody. And that's some of the news for Friday morning, December 2nd, 2022. The news was written and produced by this reporter. You can download the news at pauldurienzo.com. From New York City, I'm Paul Durienzo. Thanks for listening.